Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray this day that your spirit would overshadow us and that your son would be formed in us anew. Lord, strengthen our faith. Amen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. My first response this week when I actually looked at the passage that was in front of us was to say, what is there to say? After all, we all know the story, right? And it seems so simple on its surface. What more is there to add? But then I started reading, and I realized, oh my goodness, Stephen, how wrong you were. How much more is there? I ran across a commentary that actually said that this passage has the whole of the gospel encapsulated in it in seed form. And that idea captured my imagination that in this passage you see the problem with humanity. You see in this passage our need for a Savior, the sinfulness that's in us. You see in this passage also God's solution to our problem. The fact that he would send a Savior to rescue us from sin. You see in it actually, and this is beautiful, I didn't see this, but this was pointed out to me in that commentary, the pure prototype of conversion in Mary. The Holy Spirit does the impossible, forms Jesus in a person. That's beautiful, is it not? That that's what conversion looks like. That Mary becomes an example, a prototype for all of us as the Holy Spirit overshadows her to form Jesus in her. You see in this passage a beautiful picture of grace. God shows up. God speaks. God speaks and shows up to people who don't even know what they need. That God always comes first. You see in this passage a beautiful picture of faith. Joseph just simply saying, if God said it, then I believe it. I'll trust what he says. You see in it a perfect picture of obedience. Not obedience that says, I will earn God's presence or earn his favor, but instead obedience that is a response to the fact that God already showed up. 
But that obedience is a way of stepping into what God is doing. Beautiful, is it not? All of these things that shoot through this, even bigger as you start to scan out, it's like the whole of Scripture is encapsulated in this little bitty story in kernel form, in seed form. You see a picture of creation itself. You remember the beginning of Genesis? The Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, calling life out of nothingness. And see the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary, calling impossible life out of nothingness. It's a story of creation retold. But you also see the end of the story, where creation is headed, new creation retold. Because how does the Bible end? God with us, dwelling amongst his people, close to them, no separation between them. And what do we see in this passage? Emmanuel, God with us. The whole Bible encapsulated in this form. You could keep going. It's beautiful. And the more I read, the more I thought, my, how wrong I was to think that there is nothing here, think that there is nothing more to say. You see a doctrine of inspiration. The Lord spoke through the prophet. He speaks through the scriptures. You see the doctrine of the church in seed form, Mary being the type of the church, the Holy Spirit covering over her so Jesus formed in the midst. All these things, you realize that like Matthew has packed all of it into this tight little set of verses. And you see the centrality of Christ in all of it. When I first looked at this, I thought, what's there to say? We all know this passage. And then after reading, <laughs> the thing I thought was, oh my, there's so much more that could be said than we have time for. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of those. In fact, we're not going to go through any of the ones that I just mentioned. We're going to focus on two other things. And first I thought, I want to talk about Joseph's righteousness. Because in this, you see this beautiful picture of the way righteousness, real godly righteousness, protects others from shame. Joseph becomes a picture, a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross, who protects us from shame, who lifts shame from our shoulders, because Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want Mary put to shame. How different that is for most of our attempts to be seen to be right. Because usually when we want to be seen to be right, we're not thinking about anyone else except for ourselves. And yet godly righteousness says, how can I protect you from shame? That was my first thought, but then I thought, no, that's not what we need today. In the end, I want to go someplace simple, someplace we all know. And I want to go someplace and listen from our heart. I want to look at two things, two points, and my desire is simply to slow down, to hear again a story we've heard a thousand times, and to remember anew the significance of what it means. I want to dwell very simply on why Jesus came. And I want to dwell on who he is. Why he came, his work, and who he is, his identity. The why he came is embedded in that simple statement, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God save. His name is a picture of our plea, God save, help us. A plea that all of us at various moments have felt 
when we've been caught or overwhelmed or run over by life and we say, save me, I can't do this. His name is a picture of our need and it's a declaration of what God will do. He came to save his people. And the verse tells us explicitly what from? From their sins. I mentioned this to Justin a couple of days ago, and he said, I think very rightly, that we're really good at talking about people being saved from the guilt of their sins. But we don't do as good of a job talking about people being saved from the sin itself. But that's what the angel said to Joseph. He will save his people from their sins, from the sin itself, not just from the guilt, not just from the fear that the sin produces, not just from the shame that it produces, but from the sin itself. That he would save people from the thing that's actually enslaving them. Save people from the thing that's actually corrupting their life, that's putting them to death on the inside. Save people from the thing that's polluting them, that's binding them, that's ensnaring them. That he would save people from the choices that they wish that they weren't making, even as they continue to make them. That he would save people from the habits that get formed by those choices, the habits that we wish that we could break that we can't because we feel powerless. That even at a deeper level than that, that he would save them from the impulses of their heart that are going all astray. From the things that they feel powerless to control, the longings that just spring out from us, the longings of selfishness, of covetousness, of greed, of lust, and all the rest. That he would save people from their inclination that seems to spring from the very core of their being, just always to take things the wrong way and get defensive and critical always to defend themselves by cutting down the other through gossip or slander. That he would save people from the impulse to promote oneself, to be seen as having it all together. That these, these things that just flow from our hearts, it's not just that he would save them from the guilt of their sins, but the angel says he will save them from their sins themselves. That this is what he came to do to set us free from these things that are just broken and bent and twisted inside of ourselves. We need to be reminded that this is why he came. We have a tendency to point to the cross and say we're saved on the cross, and that's true. But even before that, in his very birth, in his life, in his ministry, his death, yes, his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the whole work and being of Jesus was for you, for me, to deliver us from those things inside of us that we can't deliver ourselves from. He came to save you, to set you free, to break the powers that you cannot break yourself to release you from those things that bind and enslave and hurt and corrupt, to change the heart in a way that none of us have ever been capable of doing. Go back to that picture of conversion, Mary overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and the impossible happens. Life formed out of nothingness. Jesus formed in her midst. Can you imagine the impossible? Overshadowed by the Spirit, your heart changed in a way that you can't change it for yourself. 
He came to save his people from their sins. We need to remember this message to hear it again. Because it's so easy for us when confronted with the difficulty and the pain of life to point the finger outside. The Jew would have said at the time of Jesus, the problem is the Romans. Point the finger outside. And we, like them, say the problem is, and you fill in the blank. It's my sister. It's my husband. It's my income. It's my boss. It's my health. It's this or that cultural idea that's enslaving our country and breaking it down. It's the other political party. Some of those things are problems. I'm not denying that. I mean, the Romans genuinely were a problem for the Jews. In fact, that's an understatement. But what was the real issue? The real issue wasn't outside. It was inside the very heart of the person. It was the stuff that was killing from the inside, enslaving from the inside. The problem was the fact that we are bent inwards upon ourselves, fixated with ourselves, preoccupied with ourselves, so twisted that we cannot see life and grace and truth, so bound up that everything becomes broken that we try. And the proclamation, he came to save from that, to deliver. This is Jesus' work. In his identity, who he is, seen in this very simple verse quoted from Isaiah, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His identity, he is God himself come to be with us. And I know we confess this in the creed every Sunday, we acknowledge it, but sometimes we have to stop and say we scarcely understand the words that we speak. That the eternal Son of God, the one who has existed from all eternity past, the one with no beginning and no creation, the one who is God from God and light from light, the eternal Word of the Father who has never not been, joined himself in the moment of conception to human nature took human nature into himself forever, binding himself to what we are, this stuff of flesh, weak, struggling. He bound himself to us in that moment, and there is a perfect union that from now on can never be divided. God became man. In that moment, Mary bore God in her womb because the eternal God bound himself to humanity in that moment by becoming human like us. Human like us in every way except one, except sin, that thing that binds and corrupts and destroys and distorts, came like us, one of us, God in the flesh, His work he came to save from sin, his identity, God now in the flesh with us. I want to linger on this second point as I did on the first. Because we have the tendency, we have the temptation, we fall prey to the sense that God is a long way off. That's the way it feels many days, does it not? 
God's so distant from me. God, where are you? God, when will you return? God, when will you be close to me? The sense that God is a million miles away. In other words, we're all latent deists. We can easily slip into the pattern of believing that God set the world in motion and then has taken a hike. But what does God with us testify? That God is not distant. He's not distant. He was not distant then and he is not distant now. It testifies that the source of all being in existence, the transcendent one who is holy, who is different, utterly self-sufficient, the one who never needed anything, the one who is content in himself, this perfect union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, happy and free from all eternity past, with all being and power at his disposal, he looks at us and says, I would be with them. I would be with them. I would go close. I would become like them. There's not been a sorrow that you have encountered that he is not with you in it. There has not been a joy that you have experienced that he is not there rejoicing with you. There has not been a night of anxiety or loneliness that he has not been beside you in that moment. The testimony of his identity, God who is with us, the with us God, closer to you than you know, more faithful to you than you can imagine, loving you more than you know how to love yourself, closer and closer to you. This is the testimony of who he is, the God who saves from sin and the God who is with us. This is who he is. This is Jesus Christ. Advent is about waiting for the return of Christ. We wait to celebrate his first coming, and that waiting to celebrate his first coming reminds us to wait for his second coming. But there's a third coming that we need to remember, that he has already come amongst us and that we are not alone. And so as you go about this day, this week, as you move forward towards Christmas, cling to the fact that this Jesus came to save you from your sin. It's true he works more slowly than most of us would wish. We say, get it over with now, and he says, I play the long game. Cling to the fact that he came to be with you, that he is the with us God. Amen.